As Brian early has already said, listen, we'd love to be able to see you Tuesday night at one of our services. It will be a good time as we spend time focused on the Christmas story, uh, specifically that night, and we celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, we have been reading through, walking through the book of Matthew and the story of the birth of Christ over the past several weeks, and we will again be there this morning. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 2, uh, we would like to begin there today. Um, you know, if, if you'll spend time, I, I think this is one of the things that we need to always remember. Sometimes we can hear something so many times that it just becomes second nature to us and we fail to, we fail to uh, thanks Travis, to take a look and to maybe look just a little bit deeper because sometimes something can become so commonplace that we miss out. You, you know what I'm saying? And it's so easy with that. I mean, we can get to reading the Christmas story over and over and over again and maybe miss out on some hidden gems or jewels that may be not buried, but maybe just because of the familiarity that we have to the story, we walk over the top of it and not even notice it. I want to maybe bring out some things this morning as we read, but it's a privilege to be here today and, and to be able to spend some time in God's Word. And let's begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and let's see if we can maybe pick out some things today that will be of an interest to us, that will be helpful to us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is, this is how Matthew records in chapter 2, verse 1. It said, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King, da King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. I want to start off today by maybe addressing some misconceptions that we have about the Christmas story or some of the things surrounding the birth of Christ. Number one, we said this and talked about it last, sort of last week, that that night was anything but silent, nor was it calm. If you know anything about the, the tensions that were going on between the Romans and the Jews, if you know anything about the political things that were going on at that time, and not even to mention that a baby being born. Now, listen, I don't know how it was in your house or what your experience was when a child was born, but it was never calm and peaceful, right? And I don't want you to miss this. And I, and I thought about this this past week. This was Mary's first. Think about that for a second. Ladies, think about what it was like the first time leading up to the birth of that first child. Now, the second child and the third child, you're an expert by that time, right? But the first child, listen, baby, you have no clue what's going on. And so there's all this anxiety. There's maybe all these fears that are surrounding the birth of a firstborn. And not only that, we're here in the States where we've got some nurses and some doctors and we've got family that's surrounding us. But think about the story of where Mary was and who was surrounding her. Some sheep, maybe goats, a cow, and Joseph. And what in the world did he know about giving birth to a baby? So you can imagine the anxiety. I, I have to go back to the, to the time that, that, uh, that Abby was born. 
six and a half weeks out. I don't know if I can say this, but I'll say it. Her water broke. I didn't know what water breaking was. Didn't have a clue. But the doctor said, it's not really that big a deal. Just go on home. Listen, it is a big deal. Because six hours later, she was given birth. Unexpected. Not packed. Bad deal. Lots of fear. Lots of anxiety. But God took care of it. But I want you to think about that night. We talk about it being peaceful and quiet, and we sing these wonderful songs. But it was not peaceful, and it was not quiet at all. The other thing I want to say is this. Think about the misconception about the wise men. I mean, in your manger scene, you've probably got these three guys that you call wise men, and they always show up, you know, and and, and you put them up in your house, and you've probably got a manger. If you've got a manger scene, you've probably got them at your house too. But who were these guys? Where did they come from? And how many of them were there? Well, the Greek word for magi can be translated into wise men. These were guys who supposedly uh, they had this superior kind of knowledge and abilities, but there's no historical basis at all of their being kings. Sometimes we'll say these three kings, we three kings. There's no evidence at all of them being kings. They themselves acknowledged that they had an interest in the signs in the heavens. And the Bible says that they were from the east, which would have been the direction of Babylon and Persia, which would have made a lot of sense if they were were called Persian wise men. What we do know about the east is that Babylon laid that way and Persia laid that way. And there are historians that believe that these wise men would have heard about the scriptures because, believe it or not, if you remember and know anything about history of the scriptures and about the Bible, what took place 586, the Babylonians had come in and they had pillaged the city. They had destroyed the temple. They had destroyed Jerusalem and they had exiled the people out. There are those that say that it was uh, the, the wise men received their information about the scriptures from Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the exile. There are others that believe that maybe the wise men were, happened to be uh, relatives or they were from the lineage of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there are those that believe that the scriptures that they pulled their information, the prophecies from, was from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 24. If you have that, you might want to turn to it. I'll read it to you. We'll show it up on the screens. But in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, there was a prophecy that said, I see him, but not here and now. I I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob, and a scepter will emerge from Israel, and it will crush the foreheads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of She. On a side note, it's very interesting from where this prophecy came. This prophecy came from an evil prophet. He was a prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam had been hired by king of Moab, Balak, uh, to curse the children of Israel because he was fearful of them because of their size and because... Balak knew that God was with the Israelite people, but instead of cursing them, after a series of events, he blessed them. There was a series of events, if you guys remember the story about the talking donkey in Numbers chapter 24, 22, 23, 24, that's where this is at. And so instead of cursing them, as he was hired to do, what, what uh, Balaam did is he, he blessed them. So here's God taking a crooked stick, as we would say, and striking a mighty lick. He uses Balaam the sorcerer to prophesy the coming of the Messiah. It reminds us that God can use anyone or anything to accomplish his plans. 
And Matthew says that the, it was the wise men that would, arise, that would arrive in Jerusalem. And we say, why Jerusalem? Well, it would make sense that there was a new king of the Jews that would be born. He would be born there in Jerusalem. But what about the wise men? How many of them were there? Scripture doesn't tell us, but the tradition has always told us that were three wise men. We don't know that for sure. We say maybe three wise men because there were three gifts that were given. What were they? Yeah, don't ever forget that. Gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh, right? We don't know how many of them that there were. It's interesting uh, that also that uh, leading us to believe, but more than likely there were not only months, you know, they, they would say that they, they showed up that night that the baby was born, but that's not what the scripture says. But it would have happened probably months or even years after the baby had been born. And it tells us about that. The wise men didn't find baby Jesus in a manger, but they found him in a house. And we'll read that in just a second. And I tell you all this, not so you go and take the wise men, the, these guys in the manger scene and, and get away with them, but you might at least want to put them on the other side of the house. Now, why do you think that would be? So when people walk in, they would say, well, what are those guys doing over there? And you go, well, that's the wise men. Well, why aren't they over there? Well, there's, you could say because they're coming from afar and, they, and they'll arrive a little bit later. You guys are supposed to laugh. There's another guy we find in the story. His name is Herod, King Herod, as a matter of fact. He's a character. Uh, it's better to gra easier to grasp what's going on when we understand some of the characteristics behind this guy. Herod the Great, he was a terrible king. He was put in leadership by the Roman government. He was put in the leadership by the Roman government, but he was not supported by the Jews. They didn't want anything to do with him. He was given the title of king of the Jews by Rome, yet he was not accepted by, Jew by the Jewish people. He ruled over Israel for about 33 years. And even though he was known as a clever ruler and a great ruler, he was also a tyrant. He was a murderer. He was a builder. He built palaces and temples and ports on the water and aqueducts and marketplaces and housing developments, just to list a few things. But he wasn't just a builder, but he was also very, very protective of his, of his throne. He was a jealous king. He was a hateful king. His, history tells us that he murdered many, many people, many of those being family members, not only, not only close family members, but extended family members. Spouses, her family, even his own children. There was even a time that it said that he even killed 45 members of the Jewish ruling council. One of his final acts in Herod's life, to tell you a little about how evil he was, he was near his death. He knew that the people didn't like him at all. So what he did is he rounded up all of these people that were influential people from around the, around the area, and he brought them together and put them in the stadium or in an area there inside of Jericho. And the, the, the order that he had given was that when he took his last breath, they were to execute all of those people so that there would be mourning because he knew that there wouldn't be mourning when he died. He wanted there to be mourning. So to tell you how crazy he was, he said, listen, when I die, what I want you to do is I want you to kill all these people so there would be mourning in the streets. And when Herod died, they went against his order and they let all the people go. But it just gives us a little bit of a picture of how evil this king was. 
This is what Caesar Augustus himself said, the emperor of Rome. It was better to have been a, a, a Herod sow than his son. So when we talk about Herod wanting to kill babies, it makes it a little bit more uh, understandable, especially not just babies, but the one that he had heard that would, had been destined to be king. And all of a sudden, some of these pieces begin to funnel in to recognize and understand the temperature of what was taking place during that time. Matthew 2, chapter 4 goes on to say this, that he called a meeting, talking about Herod, Herod called a meeting of the leading priest and the teachers of the religious law, and he asked, he said, listen, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And their response was this, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And he responds from a prophecy back from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you not least among the ruling cities of Judah? For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And then he goes on in verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. (laughs) And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, Listen, go to Bethlehem, and I want you to search carefully for this child. And when you find him, I want you to come back, and I want you to tell me so that I, too, can go and worship him. Now, do you think that was his plan? No, not at all. He didn't want to worship this child, but no, what he wanted to do is he wanted to kill him. It's exactly what he wanted to do. It goes on to say, after this interview, the wise men went on their way, and the, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, and it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And listen to this. Maybe you've missed this before. They entered the what? The house. Didn't say manger. Didn't say cave. He said they entered the house And they saw what? A baby? The child with his mother, Mary, and they had bowed down and and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And he goes on to say, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Let me give you a couple things this morning about um, the gospel and how we find it inside of this story, how we find the, the, uh, the thoughts in reference to the gospel embedded inside of the Christmas story. You might want to write this down, and this is really good in light of the fact that we are in support of Lottie Moon right now. The gospel is for the nations. The gospel is for the nations. When you take a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we call the gospels, Each one of them was written by a different person, and each one of them were focused on the life of Christ and written for a specific audience. And we know that Matthew was writing his account for the Jews, with the Jews in mind. And we learned up front that Matthew went to great extent to validate and to authenticate the fact that Jesus was from the line of David, and he was from Judah, that he would be the promised Messiah and King. But it's interesting that even though Matthew's account was written for the Jews, It's amazing, but who he records coming to see Jesus. 
He begins with the nations coming to see baby Jesus, and he also ends with the great commission for his children, those that were believers and followers of Christ, that they would not remain silent, but they would take the story of this baby and eventually the gospel of Christ, and they would take it to the world. That they would take this message of hope to the nation so that every person would have the opportunity to hear the gospel. That we would share the nations, the message of the gospel, so that others could hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel message just wasn't for the Jews, but it was for everyone. Jesus wouldn't just be the king of the Jews, but he would be the king of kings. And it's our responsibility as children, as his children, and a part of his kingdom to take the gospel to the ends of the world. You know, I'm reminded this morning, and I wrote down some specific um, um, numbers that I, I recorded. And, and you, can, you can pull these from, from different places and different, different uh, sites and different organizations have different numbers. But I wanted to, to give you some numbers today to help you better understand, again, the extent of the gospel and, and what the work that still needs to be done. 6,800 or so unreached people groups, they say, are yet today in this world to hear the gospel. 6,800 people groups. The IMB, the International Mission Board, said that of those 6,800 groups, 3,100 of those people groups are not only unreached groups, they are unreached and unengaged people groups, which means there's no missionary contact, there's no missionary work that's being done within that group of people at all. In other words, within the 7.45 billion people that there are, 3.15 billion of those people live in an unreached people group who have little or no access to the gospel. That's incredible. 1.4 billion people live in India. And yet we know that by statistics, 96 to 97% of the people living in India are living in an unreached people group. 2,600 people groups inside the country of India, the nation of India itself. And out of that, 2,600, 23 plus hundred people groups are unreached or unengaged. That's incredible. Just in India, 75% of these unreached, unengaged people groups are in India alone. I got, a, I got a, um, uh, an email, a text, just last night that one of the missionaries that we work there within India is now back in the tribal area, and their family is there to celebrate the holiday season, the Christmas season with the tribal people. They sent me a picture and said, the devil is always at work trying to destroy what we're doing. They had put their son to bed the night before the mother had went in to cover him up with a blanket because of the coldness there. When she was went in the room, she noticed that there was a cobra that had made its way into the room and was there inside that room with that child. Can you imagine that? I don't think so. Snakes, no snakes, not in my bedroom, people. That just doesn't work. But here they are as missionaries in an area that unreached, unengaged people. One of the recent lists that was compiled said this, 50 of the largest unreached and unengaged people groups from all over the world, out of that, 21 of those are in India alone. The next nation or country with the next amount of people, people groups, um, the amount would be China, which has four. So that tells you the enormous number of people 
that live in unengaged, unenriched people groups inside of the country of India. That's one of the reasons that we support Lottie Moon. That's one of the reasons that when you're giving is so vitally important because it goes to help reach people around the world that don't know or haven't heard the gospel. And 100% of all those monies given go directly to fund mission work around the world so that people will have an opportunity to hear Christ. I don't know, but this is, this is what's become known to me, especially as I walk around. Listen, there are wise men all over the world that are seeking, want to hear the hope of the gospel. Not just overseas, though, but here as well. See, you've got people that you work by, that you, that, you, that you live by, that you do life with, that are around you, that are searching and are looking for the truth and want to know more about Jesus. You say, but not here. I was just in a conversation the other day with somebody, and they told me in a conversation, I said, well, listen, um, they grew up here in the area. I said, well, where did you go to church when you, when, when, when you were growing up? And they said, well, I didn't go to church. And I said, what do you mean you didn't go to church? They said, well, I just didn't go to church. Nobody ever invited me to go to church. Didn't have any friends that went to church. And I said, well, where in the world did you get this interest in the things of the Lord? And they said, well, when I was at college, I was getting ready to graduate and and, uh, I would be leaving and somebody knocked on the door and they were getting ready to start a church and they invited me to come to church. And I told them, I said, listen, I, I, I can't go. I'm getting ready to leave. And they said, well, thank you. But, but before they left, they asked me if they could pray for me. And there at my door, they prayed. And they said, I've never forgotten that prayer. And since that time, I've been searching and looking. And believe it or not, there are people all around us. Even though we live in America and we worship in buildings like this, there are people lost that are hungry that are just searching and looking for somebody to point them towards Christ. We're surrounded by people like that. You may never go on an overseas mission trip, which I would hope that everyone would have an opportunity to participate in that, but every one of us have the opportunity to be able to participate in being faithful and taking the gospel and, um, to, to those that where we are. And Matthew reminds us from the beginning to the ending of his book that the gospel is for the nations. And I don't want to miss out on being part of what God's doing, not only around the world, but also here locally as well. It was a privilege yesterday to, to watch as we had the, the opportunity of passing out meals at Beyond the Walls to our neighbors within the community that are, are less fortunate. So many of you participated, so many from around the community comes to participate. But what a great day it is to share a meal. That's great. But you know, the greatest privilege is building is taking an opportunity of feeding people, but using it as an opportunity to be able to share the gospel. I sat down with a lady yesterday, tears just rolling down her face. She was sitting on a bench, went and sat beside her, and I said, "Uh, it's a tough season, isn't it? And she said, yeah. I said, what makes it so tough? She's hooked up to some equipment, helping her breathe. And she said, well, you know, it's not really my health. It's really my family. Because even though I have children, I'm all alone at this time. And it's been that way for years. And you wonder, we have the privilege every day of making an impact for Christ. Write this down. God accomplishes his purpose through creation. 
You know, there was a story in the Old Testament about God using a storm and a, and a fish in the, in the story of Jonah. Or maybe you remember the story of how God used the plagues and the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea to rescue his children of Israel, and also maybe the burning bush to speak to Moses. This is what I want to say. God can use and will use his creation to accomplish his pur- purpose. And here is, here is God wanting these wise men from Persia to be some of the first people that would worship Jesus. And so he uses his creation in the stars and the heavens to guide them to that place. The book of Job, chapter 37, 12, said, listen, the clouds churn about in his direction and they do whatever he commands throughout the earth. And just as God arranges the heavens and the earth to carry out his will and purpose, I want you to know this, he is at work in our lives, arranging every detail of our life so that we would come to know him. The apostle Paul would say this in Romans that God causes everything, not some things, but God causes everything to work together for the good of those who, uh, who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And that promise isn't for everyone, but it's for those who, who love God. And God uses the good, he uses the bad, he uses the difficult for his purpose because he is working to accomplish something within our lives. And he goes on to say in verse 29, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. In other words, for those of us that have trusted Christ, the things that we experience, God is using them to conform us into his likeness. Man, whether or not it's that mountaintop experience or, or whether it's in the, in the darkest of the valleys, God is growing us up to be more into the likeness of his son. Write this down, the wisdom of man's foolishness. The wisdom of man's foolishness. We say that the wisdom of the world is dated. Let me see if I can say this correctly. The wisdom of the world is constantly changing, consistently changing. But the wisdom of God is eternally consistent. You know, as a parent... There's that time in the life of your teenager where they don't think you're that smart, right? As the older they get, they think, well, mom and dad were a lot more smarter than what I thought. But even though culture changes, God's word never changes. God never changes. It can be trusted that even though man's knowledge and wisdom is constantly evolving, the wisdom of God is eternal and it is consistent. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Matthew also uh, tells us and teaches us that the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world is limited. I don't think I need to maybe explain that, but here's what it says, Paul said in, in Corinthians, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and he knows that they are worthless. Regardless of how wise we may be, our wisdom is, is limited. But our wisdom is also, the wisdom of the word um, is narrow, and the wisdom of the world is narrow and exclusive. Write that down. I want you to think about that for a second. The wisdom of the world is narrow and exclusive. Who has access to the wisdom of the world? Those that have resources. 
those that have maybe been in the right, been, been uh, born in the right country or those that have been born in the right family and those that have access to wisdom are those that, that have been born with resources. I mean, it's great if you have been happen to have been born in the right country or, man, you, you've come from the right family, but what happens if you aren't? The world's wisdom is exclusive. In contrast, the first people to worship Jesus, it wasn't the wise men. Remember in Luke, it was the shepherds. Even in the differences of their education between the wise men and the shepherds and the perceived differences in, in status within the society, listen to this, both would have to kneel before baby Jesus. Because at the foot of the manger, there is no exclusion. There is only inclusion. The gospel is an inclusive. It is inclusive. And it brings together the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the good and the bad, the educated as well as the ignorant. Because all of us are born with the same issue. And that issue is what? Sin. Sin. And the only solution we find is at the center of the Christmas story, the birth of baby Jesus. And we find the shepherds and the wise men, prostitutes, beggars, as well as kings, they can all sit at the, ta- at the same table because what unites us all isn't what we've done or what we've accomplished or the positions that we've held, but what unites us is the salvation that is available through God's grace. We all come to the cross the same way, guilty, but we have the privilege of leaving clean, no exceptions. Let's go back to Matthew just for a second. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for this child to kill him. How many of you believe that God speaks to us in dreams? Yeah, I can tell you some stories. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death, and this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. And based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead." you got a place, write this in there. Jesus is God's answer to my pain and to the wickedness around me. This baby being born would be an answer to the pain and the suffering and the wickedness that is around us. So you got the story here ending up with Herod going on this tirade, this, this, this jealous tirade. And He's not just calling for the death of adults at this time, but he's calling for the death of innocent children, specifically one child, one child who would be known as the king of kings, the king of the Jews. 
And here we find Matthew, he's quoting a couple of prophecies back from the Old Testament, reminding us to never forget. One of those in 2.15 where he goes back to Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 where it says, I called my son out of Egypt. It's a reference from the, the exodus out of Egypt when God took Israel out of that brutal time of slavery and brought them into the land of peace and promise. And then we also find another prophecy that's, that is repeated here in Matthew chapter 2.18. It's a second reference in Jeremiah. It's of Jeremiah 31.15 and it says, A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning that Rachel weeps for her children refusing to be comforted for, for they are dead. Well, what, what in the world is all that about? Well, here's Jeremiah offering hope to the children of Israel that are being taken off into exile. So to give you a little bit of a background, after God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he placed them in the promised land. and He said, listen, I want you guys to forever serve me. I want you to follow my commands. And if you do, man, listen, you're going to receive blessing. But if you don't, if you rebel, if you reject God, there's going to be issues. Guess what they did? They rebelled against God. They rejected God. And finally, God said, I've had enough. That's it. So he sent the Babylonians into the southern kingdom in 586, which we talked about just a while ago. And they came in and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem. And they exiled the people outside. They took them as captives and prisoners, and they placed them in a city called Ramah, which was just north of the city of Jerusalem. And it was there that the families were torn apart, and they were placed into slavery. And it was said that Ramah was filled with the weeping and the wailing during this time. I mean, can you imagine if, if, if you were in that environment and you were being torn apart? Think of the weeping and the wailing and the, and the agony that you would be facing because of knowing what was happening and what was going on. And here in the midst of all this despair, here's Jeremiah speaking. And he goes on to say in Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17, but this is, now, this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Here is this hope, this prophecy of hope. Your children would come back to you from a distant, a distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. And here's God in his way of saying, listen, I'm going to be sending a victorious king. I'm going to send a king who's also going to bring a new covenant. And he's going to change the hearts of the people. And he's going to reconcile them one to another. And there will be peace on earth. And the writer in Matthew is, is, is saying that Jesus is the ultimate exodus. That Jesus is the deliverance from our bondage of sin and being exiled from God. And watch this, don't miss it. Here's Matthew applying the past to the present. That even in this time that seems so unbearable, in this time that seems so unthinkable, as it did back in the Old Testament, there's going to there's be a time when there's a voice of hope that a new king has been born. Not a king like Herod that would inflict pain and struggle and suffering, but one who would heal, one who would bring calm and peace to the hurts. Not a king that would take advantage of us, but a king who would be willing to pour out himself as a sacrifice for us. See what Matthew was saying? You may think Herod has the last word, but he doesn't. God does. That even in the times that you think that life is out of control, 
God is in control. That the world is the way it is because of the curse of sin. But Jesus was born to put an end to it all. And that one day he's coming back and there'll be no more pain and there'll be no more suffering and there'll be no more heartache and there'll be no more shame. Maybe you remember the words of the song, O Holy Night. Go something like this. Don't sing it. What chain shall he break for the slave is our brother? And in his name all oppression shall, shall cease. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Let's not be funny this morning, but let's recognize this. See that, that cradle that Jesus would lay would be the cradle that would rock the world. The cradle that would rock the world. And just like Israel was exiled and, and God brought them back, Jesus is the one who would rescue us from our separation from God. And the prophet Jeremiah is saying, listen, you may be weeping now because of the issues going on within your life, because of the struggles, but one day God is going to make it all new. And Matthew is telling us that Herod, though large and in charge at this time, he would not get the last word. Because what Herod meant for evil, God, through the cross and the resurrection, would make new. And here are the wise men. And here are the shepherds. And they teach us that the hope of salvation is available to all of us who are willing to believe and to place our faith and trust in him. There are no exceptions. And there are no exclusions. See that gift? The greatest gift that's ever been given we just have to be willing to receive it. My question is, have you ever received the greatest gift of all? I'm not talking about a Christmas tree and toys up underneath the... I'm talking about have you ever come to the place in your life where you've humbled yourself, you've recognized that you're a sinner, and you've cried out and you've recognized that great gift and you've said... I want to trust, and I want to follow you. Tristan, um, where did he go? He's ran someplace. Man, listen, buddy, you nailed it. Thank you so much this morning for your, for, for your testimony before your baptism. I thought, man, out of, the, out of the mouth of a sixth grader, what a great testimony. You know, and, and Larry and Karen, I thought about you guys, and I thought about where you've been and, and in and and just your life and how, how God is using you to have an influence in the lives of your children and your grandchildren because you received the greatest gift. So as we close today, I, I, don't, I don't know. We're going to get into Luke chapter 2 on Tuesday night on Christmas Eve. But I guess just to finish up today, it would be this. Where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Have you ever made a decision to follow him, to trust him? And if you haven't, why not today? See, in the midst of the suffering and the pain, the Bible teaches us that God's at work. Why? Bringing us to a place of, so that we can be more like his son so that he can use us as an instrument of his peace and grace to the world around us.
We don't walk through the things that we walk to because God hates us, but because God loves us. And not only because he loves us, but because he loves the world. Would you pray with me this morning? There's so many different things, Father, as I read the scriptures that I can pull from from your word and things that we can learn, that nuggets of truth that we can uncover. But the one thing remains consistent is that you sent your son Jesus to be born of a virgin who would walk upon this earth who would be arrested and eventually take the sins of the world upon his shoulders and be crucified on a cross so that we might have forgiveness of sins. That Jesus himself, born in that lowly manger, would eventually be raised and his blood would be shed and he would become the Lamb of God so that our sins could be forgiven. Father, my my prayer today, as we get ready to conclude our time here, is that if there's someone here today um, that has never trusted you, that even today they they would just be truthful and honest right there with you. They would just say, Jesus, I, I don't understand it all, but Jesus, what I do know is I want to trust you and I want to follow you and I, I want to accept you into my life. Would you save me today? And if there's a person that's here in that place, Father, would you just, I pray that they would be faithful to come to you today and honest and just bear their soul with you and today might be the day of their salvation that they receive the greatest gift of all. Help us to never become so familiar with the story of the birth of Christ that we bypass some of the greatest things that we can learn. For those of us that are believers, I pray that we would leave here today with a a greater understanding that, that Jesus came so that the world may know. This is not just an American gospel. It's not just a Jewish gospel. This is a a gospel for the world. Jesus came for the nation so that they may know. Help us to be more active and and, and more uh, at work as a church body, as a church family, bringing the gospel to the world. Thank you, Father, for your your blessings. Thank you for such a faithful group of people, a church family that I know loves you and that seeks to want to live for you every day and that has a passion for others to come to know. Father, would you continue to to prompt us as we walk out these doors today to be ambassadors of your peace. Bring us back to this place on Tuesday night for those that can and that we would again be able to be reminded of the story and the significance of the birth of the Christ child. Thank you, Father, for, for your presence in this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.